Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for grace as we deal with subjects uh, that the world has seized, that they've taken control over, they have no actual rights over. And these are issues of sexuality, Lord, issues of womanhood, what a godly woman is to be. Lord, as we compare and contrast the adulterous woman and the proverbial woman who is the godly woman. Give us grace. Give me much grace in dealing with these difficult subjects, I pray. We pray for a movement of the Holy Spirit in this time to apply these things to us. And Lord, we all pray that you would give us the grace to submit to your word. And we pray that you would find us faithful in this. And I pray that if I say anything that is inaccurate, that it would fall to the ground and be received by no one. Lord, I do pray for the grace to rightly divide your word. And I praise you and I thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Having completed proverbial speech, we now move into the proverbial woman and we will be in this for multiple sermons as well. But prior to engaging in this, I'd like to remind you of some big picture objectives, some things that I can't afford to have get lost. And please understand that I'm not actually clarifying these things now because of today's topic in particular, but rather in light of the totality of what we have discussed from Proverbs thus far and what we have yet to discuss and the weightiness of all of this, which is a weightiness that I very much feel as well. The feelings that motivate the forthcoming preface, in fact, began several sermons ago for me, at least. I remember in the opening sermon to all of this saying something to the effect that this was going to be hard for many of you to hear, that I was not speaking generally, but speaking specifically to sins that were at work in this congregation. And I think it's lived up to the original billing. I do know that it has been hard for many of you to hear. It has also, in fact, been hard for me to say these things. It's been hard for me to hear these things. Um, These have been rebukes of me in so many different respects throughout the course of this. And I became aware of the weight of this upon my own soul actually when I preached the Christmas sermon from Isaiah 9. It was a very much needed reprieve. I just got to preach Christ and to extol His virtue. And it's not that any of these sermons have been 
uh, without the gospel. They have all had the gospel in them. But through the purity of that Christology, I was able to regain some perspective. And I'd like to see if I can't help you do the same here before we get started and just plunge right back in. And to this end, I'd like to speak to you briefly about two distinct categories of grace. And through this, we will remember or perhaps better understand our objective through this series. On both of these are graces, but they are very much categorically different, and conflating them will be ruinous, damning, in fact, if you carry it through to its ultimate conclusion. But appreciating both of them is critical, and so too then is preaching them. Our souls require both of these graces, and these of which I speak are, first off, redemptive grace, and second, preventative grace. And by the way, these categories have been called many different things by many different theologians down through the ages. These are simply my monikers for them. I do think, though, that they are clear and accurate. So first, let's consider in brief redemptive grace and its nature and its role and its context. And I'd like to do this through an example that I once heard a pastor recall from his own life. Uh, early on in his conversion, which I think occurred at the end of high school or early college for him, he was uh, made aware of an evangelistic outreach, and I think this occurred at this college. I'm a little sketchy on the details. It's been a long time since I heard this. But he, he's invited to this <coughs> evangelistic outreach, and he's already converted, but he has this girl who is a friend who is unconverted, and he wants her to come to hear the gospel. So he invites her with the understanding that the gospel is actually going to be shared there. And uh, in fact, it wasn't. Uh, The speaker took the opportunity to talk about sexual purity and uh, did this absent the gospel, but the, the primary illustration that he used was that of a rose, and he held this rose up, and he said, look at this rose and how pristine it is and how lovely it is, and then he proceeded to pass it around the uh, auditorium, and there was something like a thousand people there, and so it starts to work its way through the circulation, and he continues to talk about sexual purity, and then it makes its way all the way back to him And uh, how do you think the rose looked after being handled by a thousand different people? Not great. Okay, and the the punchline of this illustration was, who would want this rose? And the rose was, of course, representative of sexual purity. Who would want then the woman who's been around? And the person who experienced this, the gentleman who later used this as an illustration, said internally he was crying out, Jesus would want the rose. That's the point of the gospel. And he was right to be angry that the gospel was not present. Turns out you cannot teach uh, about the born-again life to people who are not yet born again. And so that was, of course, misapplied. Preventative grace has its place, but it is not that place. That's where you give the gospel because everybody already has experienced those sins and need to be redeemed from those sins. So that was not the context for that particular conversation to be had. That was the context to talk about redemption. On the other hand, though, preventative grace does have its place. 
And for this, I'd like to use an illustration that so many preachers have used down through the ages, nobody actually knows where it originated. And this is the example of the father and the son. And the son, you may have heard this in the past, the son is given to transgressing. Uh, he's a real derelict. And so every time that he does and he sins against his father, the father commemorates these sins by taking a nail and driving it into a barn door. Well, you can imagine after a while, the barn door is quite full of nails. And so eventually this son uh, comes to the father and he repents in sincerity and the father forgives him. And so they go out to the barn door and the father pulls the nails one by one. And after he has finished pulling all the nails out of the door, the son begins weeping profusely. And the father says, why are you weeping, son? You have been forgiven. And the son says, well, yes, I have been forgiven. But I can still see the holes in the door. And that speaks to the need for preventative grace. And that is what Solomon majors in. But both of these must be given. All of us have sinned. All of us require redemption. But for those of us who have sinned in certain ways, we still bear the consequences of that. Yes, our souls have been saved. But in this life, we will suffer the pain of these sins. And if we can prevent those who have not yet sinned in these ways from experiencing that pain, then we must. So bear in mind that that's what motivates all of this. As rough as this is at times and can be, it is grace-giving. Okay, the father who loves his child is going to pick them up and care for them when they fall off their bike and get hurt. But they'll also buy them knee pads and a helmet so that the next time they don't get hurt in the same way. The aftercare was grace-motivated by love, but so is the preventative care. And both are needed and both are given in Scripture, and so both are to be delivered from the pulpit. And in fact, again, Solomon very much does this consistently. And so any sermon series that accurately represents Proverbs will major in this as well. So in a few minutes, I'm going to give you yet more preventative care from Proverbs. This time we're going to focus in on women directly. But with this issue of women, we do encounter some challenges due to our particular social context that are quite unlike anything that we dealt with when we uh, dealt with men. And so we will need to address these if we really desire to treat the issues common to women in a faithful and helpful way. So first off, very pointed sermons addressing the bad behavior of women like the one that you are about to hear are essentially unheard of in our churches. Let me ask you men who have been in different churches, especially multiple different churches down through the years, how many Father's Day sermons have you heard that amount to essentially you getting lambasted as though the pastor descended from the pulpit and without missing one was sure to beat every man across the face with his very thick Bible? You've heard those? And you've heard sermons not on Father's Day that are very pointed. How many of those have you heard directed at women? Surely not on Mother's Day, but even on any other Sunday. Why the disparity? Well, one primary reason for this is that there's a very real power dynamic in evangelical churches and ostensibly Christian homes, and women rule it. It is well known that if you want to know who has the power over a certain body politic, you just need to ask and answer the question, who am I not allowed to criticize? 
in this dynamic. In our society, of course, these are transgenders. The uh, fake woman cannot criticize him, her, whatever that is. Now, you saw an excellent example of this recently. If you follow the news, there was a Finnish ice skater who always had a dream of taking the ice, and this was a, a, a fake woman. And you have here all the conditions of very high or very low comedy being met in this gentleman's example. And it, it really is tragic. It's not just funny, but it also was funny because he fell down. And so you have this man pretending to be a woman, and he comes on the ice and he can't skate either. He's also pretending to be an ice skater. And he falls in front of this whole crowd, and everybody is silent. Not a peep of criticism, not a hint of laughter. Why? Because he has all the power in this society. That's why you're not allowed to criticize him. That's a great example of that. You can also see this in the age-old proverb of the emperor who has no clothes. As I recall, it's been a long time since I heard the original version, but uh, it's a, a small child who eventually calls out and says, hey, this guy's not in regal garb. He's kind of naked. And then everybody else feels free to laugh. Why did it take him revealing that and saying that? Why didn't everybody immediately start laughing? Because the emperor had very real power over him. And for the same reason, if a man behaves badly in a Christian context, it's much more likely to be addressed. And if a woman does, it's much more likely to be dismissed. That's essentially the price of doing business, because you know what they say. If mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. This again happens commonly in gospel preaching churches and even churches that claim to hold strongly to traditional biblical sex roles and even that preach complementarianism. And I'm not at keen on redeeming terminology, but these terms are important. You hear them thrown around often, so I will give you a little tutorial here, if I may. Complementarianism is simply uh, holding to the biblical teaching that a father and a husband should lead his home and a wife should submit herself to her husband. Okay, that's what complementarianism is, that the roles complement each other. Egalitarianism is contrary to Scripture, even though they use Scripture to try to support it, and it teaches that a husband and wife are essentially in a democracy and that he is not the leader, um, and every decision and the general leadership of the home falls to both of them. So the claim is made, though, by many of these churches that they hold fast to complementarianism. But if Papa can rebuke Papa, and if Mama can rebuke Papa, the Papa correcting Mama is absolutely verboten. Is Papa really the leader of anything? Is this even equality or egalitarian? Is he even living the feminist ideal of absolute equality among the sexes? No, she is the clear leader. There's no such thing as neutrality. It's true everywhere. It's true in marriage as well. So these churches are merely theoretically complementarian, but they are practically egalitarian. And let me submit to you another proof of this disparity. If a man has a headache accompanied perhaps by some other physical struggle and he trashes a fellow church member, is his behavior justified on the basis of him not feeling well? No, it's not. How about a woman? If she is, say, made uncomfortable once more by a cyclical experience consistent with her biology and she tears somebody to shreds, is this justified by others? As though all the commands in Scripture about mutual love and respect are on pause for three to seven days every month. 
Is she permitted to justify her sinful behavior against her husband or children on this basis as well? Indeed, she very often is. I recall one situation where I saw a lady in the church just rip someone to pieces. And I went to her husband because I was supposed to be the one discipling him and brought it up. And he raised this and I went, are you kidding? You know, it's okay because I I don't see that in Scripture, my friend. Consider also the justifications of poor behavior based upon the ethnicity of the woman who is currently behaving badly. You may have heard, and I'm going to use this first because I'm married to one. You may have heard that you don't cross a Latina. You may have heard that. You may also have heard, though, that you don't cross a black woman. But you may still have heard about those fiery redheads. But you may still have heard about those Italian women, and you want to get on the wrong side of an Italian woman. Turns out it's not actually an issue of ethnicity. It's just that women are sinners. In addition to this, we also don't sufficiently rebuke women because we either believe as or behave as though bad women don't actually exist. Do you remember, it became really in vogue a few years ago, this, this very popular mantra, took the culture by storm. It was, believe all men. You remember this? Believe all men. It was the end of due process, jurisprudence. If a man said a thing about a woman in the context of sexual abuse, it was just believed wholeheartedly. No, you don't remember that because it wasn't believe all men, was it? It was believe all women. And what are the implications of believe all women? It's, of course, that women don't sin. But if that's the position that you hold to, don't tell it to Solomon. Proverbs 14.1, the wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. 21.19, it's better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. 23.27, for a harlot is a deep pit, and an adulterous woman is a narrow well. And 30, verse 20, this is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. She is well-fed, she has consumed wickedness, and she just wipes her face and said, what? So yes, the wicked woman exists. But why are we so much less conscious of her existence in contrast to her male counterpart? Well, because as we've already acknowledged, in a feministic society, she rules, and so she won't let us tell the truth about her nature. But there are a few more reasons beyond this, and one is that Uh, This absurd belief that women are effectively without sin is actually a vestigial remnant of a true and godly perspective on women that's just gotten way out of balance. Should women be protected? Yes, they should. And actually, ironically, the more feminist the society has become, the less protected women have become. You don't have your own awards. You don't have your own spaces. But men should naturally track towards protecting women. Women should naturally track towards protecting women. Societies should in recognition of very real vulnerabilities, but this has gotten twisted way out of whack by Satan into now believe all women as though women are without sin. But then also there's the fact that historically and traditionally men are the primary drivers of violence. We are the ones that are leading to the wars and we are the Uh, primary perpetrators of spousal abuse. And on account of this, many a feminist has theorized that if women were 
placed atop the food chain instead of men, violence of these sorts would end. Well, actually, in our society, in many ways, women have supplanted men in the power dynamic. And interestingly, spousal abuse of husbands at the hands of their wives has increased exponentially in the modern era. I remember when COVID was first starting to happen, I heard about one counseling outlet that had a, a 300% increase in calls from battered husbands. The rise of feminism demonstrates that the disparate use of violence between men and women is accounted for by biology, not spirituality. If women had the physical strength that men have, they would surely use it in the same way because they are just as evil by nature as we. And finally, there is the fact that we do a very poor job of understanding the nature of a woman's sin as it relates to her God-created feminine nature. When we sin, we sin in a manner that's consistent with our sexes as men and women. And we take the good gifts of God given to us as male or female, and instead of honoring Him with them, we use those in particular to rebel. So little boys have been made strong and aggressive. So when little Johnny sins, he's on the playground and he has an intrapersonal discussion or dispute. And instead of dealing with it conversationally, he punches the kid in the face. Again, misusing the strength that the Lord has given him and the aggression and misappropriating it. But the power of little girls is in their relational capacity. They have a much greater understanding of emotion, both in themselves as well as in others, and a much greater communication acumen than their male counterparts. And then you add to this physical beauty, and you're in trouble if you're on the receiving end of this. But when she sins, she uses what she's got, which equals manipulation. You see this very well in the situation with Salome, the daughter of Herodias and John the Baptist. And this point here, desperately needs to be understood, especially by parents and especially by fathers. When little Johnny tears through the house for the 10,000th time, destroying as he goes, you're right to discipline him because you've told him not to do that a million times. And it is rebellion. But when little Jane goads little Johnny into an aggressive response in order to get him disciplined because she just wants to see him get punished, you must not be deceived by that. The little doe eyes are just a veil for great wickedness. Our little boys are bundles of sinful potentiality. Amen. My son is because his father was before him, but this is equally true of our little girls. It's just that very often little girls are better at rebellion because they're naturally gifted in the area of manipulation. And if mom and dad don't nip these behaviors in the bud and speak to them with a gospel, that doe-eyed little girl is going to grow into the kind of wicked woman that we will be studying in the book of Proverbs. If you're not hip to it, you better get hip to it fast. So with all of this said, let me just give you a couple ever so brief technical notes. First off, as was the case with the sermons directed primarily at men, there's still going to be great benefit for the sex not being addressed here directly. So women will be learning what, we, what you are supposed to be, what you are not supposed to be. Men, you'll be learning about the kind of woman you want to marry and about the kind of daughters that you want to raise. So it still has value for both sexes. Secondly, it seems to me that the most prudent way to handle this study is to give you vice and then the corresponding virtue. 
rather than just bogging you down with all that is bad and then coming back with all that is right, we'll handle the two halves of the one whole at the same time. And finally, because of the breadth of the following consideration, this is going to be our only consideration this afternoon, and that consideration is that the proverbial woman, i.e. God's woman, is not the proverbial adulteress. Never the twain shall meet. She is not to reflect the attitudes of the adulterous woman at all. Now, we're going to exegete accounts from multiple chapters of Proverbs at the same time. So Solomon addresses this issue in several different places, but many of the themes overlap. And so instead of handling a certain chapter and then another one, and with it the same concepts over again, we will seek here to synthesize all of what is written into categories and deal with those categories at the same time. So first, though, let's take a step back and make an observation about the priority that this issue holds to Solomon. To start, he begins his book by establishing what we call epistemological foundations, the basis for wisdom. And the basis for wisdom is what? It is the fear of the Lord. And then he goes on to extol the virtue of wisdom, the urgency of wisdom, how fervently it is to be pursued. And then what is the first topic that he deals with in a comprehensive way? can make an argument that it's the violent man, but I think more so it is the adulterous woman. And this occurs in chapter 2, and this is where we begin, and we'll start here to understand her ways, i.e. what she does, but also how she thinks, as well as her objectives. And her first characteristic is that her powers of verbal persuasion are potent indeed. The first mention of the adulterous woman in the book of Proverbs, this is Solomon's very first observation. Chapter 2, verses 16 through 22, Solomon says that wisdom will deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words, right out of the gate. Again, she's using the good gifts that God has given her as instruments of evil. Her use of speech for evil persuasion is something Solomon reaffirms repeatedly throughout the book. 7.5, keep from an adulteress from the foreigner who flatters with her words. Verse 21, with her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Chapter 5, verses 3 through 4, the lips of an adulteress drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. That is, by the way, one of the most vivid descriptions that you have in all of Scripture with respect to anyone about wicked speech. Are you struck there first off by the reference to sharp as a two-edged sword? Does that sound familiar to you from perhaps somewhere else in Scripture, in description of Scripture? Hebrews 4.12, Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the bone from the marrow. This then would be the satanic counterfeit to that. Word of God separates as a means of supplying life She just cuts you down and cuts you in half. Consider also Wormwood. Admittedly, I wouldn't have had, you know, a tremendous frame of reference for this in the past, but uh, last year I did become quite aware of what this means. I attempted to monetize some superfluous trees on my property and encountered this. The one gentleman that I could get to come out told me that the maples in the back were not worth a whole lot because they were wormy. They'd been eaten through with worms. So he said, I can't buy these because all they're good for is pallet wood or firewood. A point there is made, right? They're not useful anymore. 
They're porous. They're eaten through with holes. That's what she does. And if you want to understand the true depths of her wickedness, consider the content of her persuasions in chapter 7, verses 11 through 15. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. Lurks. So she seizes him and kisses him, and with a brazen face she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows. Therefore I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. According to Mosaic law, when you took an animal to the temple to be sacrificed at a peace offering, the animal had to be eaten before the end of the day. What she is suggesting here, because she'll go on to invite him to share in this meal, is that what she had just offered to God in the temple should become fuel for their iniquitous romp, shall we say. She has devised the activity, and she has also supplied the means of receiving the calories needed to carry it out. And they have come from the sacrifice that she made to the Lord. She's wicked as the day is long. And if you've not encountered women like this, consider yourself fortunate, because I certainly have, not that I have carnal knowledge or any personal experience that way, with any of this, but I've known numerous women who've come to evangelical gospel-preaching churches in order to engage in an adulterous affair. I've seen it repeatedly. Religion becomes a pretext for fornication. So what is Solomon's solution to this plague of a woman? Well, it is very simply, don't walk away, son. Run. Proverbs 5 7 through 8. Now then, my sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. And so this lady's speech is very smooth. It's a trap. Don't even be there. But what makes it even smoother? Well, it's that pretty face. It's that lovely form. And this leads us to her next characteristic, which is that she is beautiful and she knows how to use her beauty. 625, do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. 710, behold, a woman comes to meet him dressed as a harlot. Now, the translators of the NASB there made an acceptable choice in rendering that harlot, but I wish they translated it whore instead, because that's what she is. And the term whore is pretty well equal to harlot, but it's less acceptable in polite conversation, and therefore it does a better job of conveying her actual nature. Now, going back to the beginning and the understanding that wicked women actually do exist and women are not merely victims, we've got to stop making excuses for women and girls who behave and dress like harlots, like whores. Well, that Instagram model has probably been exploited. Maybe and maybe not. I mean, in a sense, yeah. We've all been exploited. Have we not? Have we not all sinned and all been sinned against? But if that were justification for sin, all sin would be justified. But how many little boys is she exploiting currently with those pictures? Whose parents are foolish enough to let those little boys be on outlets like that to be destroyed by them? What of their exploitation? And you know what? The problem that we have with seeing her as exploitative is due to our unwillingness to see her motivations in light of Scripture. We're not willing to see her as God sees her. We're not willing 
to let Scripture define her. So let's let Solomon do this for us now. According to him, she is nobody's victim. She is a clever huntress. Proverbs 7.10, Behold, a woman comes to meet him dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. 6.26, An adulteress hunts for the precious life. And what does this huntress aim for? The kill shot. According to Proverbs 7.22 through 23, suddenly he follows her until an arrow pierces through his liver. He is going to die, but he is going to die bad. Eventually. Cunning huntress, again, is not a victim. By the way, here, let me say very clearly that this does not include children and women who are forced to do horrible things or actual sex slaves. They are just victims. But this woman right here, she knows exactly what she's doing and she has accounted very well for the nature of her prey. Men are powerfully motivated by sight. For a man, a 10-second scene in a movie viewed as a child once when you were maybe 10 years old can be remembered by you for decades without ever revisiting that scene from that movie. Seared into your mind. We were created this way. By the way, it's a feature, not a bug. Eve was lovely to behold. And Adam was appropriately enraptured by her beauty. And her beauty was undoubtedly a major motivation for him to build. Yes, Lord, to glorify you, I will subdue nature and rule over it. And then she receives, or he receives her. And he's got even greater motivation when he takes a look at her. One of my children asked me about this the other day. It was one of my female children inquiring as to why it is that men are like this. That we are so motivated by sight in this way and I explained it just like that. God created us to be. It's a good thing. But in a fallen world, what was originally intended to lead to a myopic focus upon our own loving hinds and graceful does, to borrow the language of Solomon, it instead becomes unfocused. And so to the exercise of our strength. Now we're not building for this beautiful woman. We are distracted by everything that is female, walks upright and has two legs. This is why quite literally the man who enjoys much intimacy, exclusively with his wife, produces so much more than the man who binges on porn. Now, the adulteress slash huntress understands all of this in the same way that a literal hunter knows that half-rotten apples and throwaway corn attract deer. And speaking of literal hunters, the tools for hunting have improved greatly down through the millennia. I don't know what the first tools were, maybe just somebody throwing rocks. But then eventually they got a sharpened rock and put it on the end of a stick and it was a spear. And then somebody figured out how to put a projectile through the open air, through the use of a bow. And now we have guns that are very precise and we've become very much better at killing our prey. And so it is with the adulterous woman. Her arsenal and her techniques have greatly improved down through the ages. I mean, look at all the effort that this lady has to put into it just to go to him. And there's this seduction and there's this dance between the two of them. She doesn't have to do that anymore. She's in everybody's pocket. 
Now, before we move off of this point, I want to explain to you how to offer redemptive grace to a lady in this situation so that she can be converted, converted the same way that the prostitute of Luke 7 was. And that is, refuse to allow her to claim victim status. I.e., refuse to allow her to use her God-given relational capacity to manipulate your emotions and her God-given communication acumen to twist her victimization into victimhood. And here is why this is so critical. Victims don't get converted, sinners do. And I speak in terms of salvation, okay? We're all victims, and, and, and to the extent that we have been made so, we ought to offer great compassion to each other. But in terms of coming before the Lord and your sin against Him, you're not a victim. This is true with every category of sin, including this one. And if they do not understand this and stop making excuses, they are damned. I used to watch these little videos when I was on social media. They'd be passed around and they were um, testimonials from former porn stars, both men and women, about how they left the industry. And, and what caught my eye with this particular one was that this young lady had, had professed to come to faith in Jesus. The problem with her testimony, though, was that everything was somebody else's fault. She went into it. She said, you know, at the beginning, I really loved this community, and I felt like I had a family because, of course, her family was a mess, which is why she ends up in porn. There's a strong correlation between those things. But at no point did she take ownership of her own sin. It was all somebody else, which is why, of course, she's not actually a Christian. Because that's not the way this works for any of us. That woman, in reality, became the exact sinkhole to hell that Solomon warns of. That had no responsibility for her own sin. Proverbs two eighteen through 19. Her house sinks down to death, and her tracks lead to the dead None who go to her return again, nor do they reach the paths of life. You know, if I'd had the opportunity to speak face-to-face with that young lady in that video, I might have taken her to Ezekiel 16 because the heart of a whore is on display nowhere more fully than there. As the whore is represented by Israel, and I will read this to you now starting in verse 15 and skimming. But you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your fame and you poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. You took some of your clothes, made for yourself high places of various colors and played the harlot on them, which should never come about nor happen. You also took your beautiful jewels made of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you and made for yourself male images that you might play the harlot with them. Then you took your embroidered cloth and covered them and offered my oil and my incense before them, also my bread, which I gave you, fine flour, oil, and honey, with which I fed you. You would offer them before a soothing aroma. So it happened, declares the Lord God. And moving forward, you built yourself a high place at the top of every street and made your beauty abominable and spread your legs to every passerby to multiply your harlotry. And further forward, how languishing is your heart, declares the Lord God. Well, you do all these things, the actions of a bold-faced harlot, you adulterous wife who takes strangers of her husband. Thus I will judge you like a woman who committed, who, like women who commit adultery or shed blood are judged. 
and I will bring on you the blood of wrath and jealousy. I will also give you into the hands of your lovers, and they will tear down your shrines, demolish your high places, strip you of your clothing, take away your jewels, and will leave you naked and bare. They will incite a crowd against you, and they will stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. They will burn your houses with fire and execute judgments on you in the sight of many women. Then I will stop you from playing the harlot, and you will also no longer pay your lovers." God uses adultery there to illustrate Israel's wickedness because there is no more vile breach of covenant than that. And hold on to that in a society where there is no fault divorce and it's of no consequence to trash the commitment that you have made to your spouse, be it a man or a woman. Behold the true nature of harlotry. That is harlotry stripped bare and left with no excuses. But my husband didn't appreciate me, so I know. But I was so lonely, so I know. But my father or other paternal figure didn't value me, so I know. And if that was the case for you, my heart breaks for you. But my compassion, young lady, can't save you. The compassion, however, of a great and true high priest who has been tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin, he can, but you've got to come to him through the truth. The way that you were sinned against in the past does not justify the way you sin at present. And that goes to the next one. But I was abused at a young age and my eyes were open. Again, my heart breaks for you. Does that lead to promiscuity? Absolutely Is that a justification for it? Absolutely not. You're still responsible before the Lord. Here is where the harlot must be brought to. I desperately need Christ because I hunted and murdered the souls of others along with my own, and I need Jesus because, Proverbs 2, I left the companion of my youth and forgot the covenant of my God. Proverbs 5, my feet went down to death and my steps to Sheol. Proverbs 6, I captured with my eyelids and burned my lovers as with hot coals. And Proverbs 7, many are my victims and numerous are all my slain. And all of that is true. But if it is recognized and repented of and the harlot turns to Jesus, it's not going to be the last word. This will. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved me, Even when I was dead and my transgressions made me alive together with Christ, by grace I have been saved, and I am raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness in Christ Jesus. For by grace I have been saved through faith, and that not of myself it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For I am a whore no more, but his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that I would walk in them. Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. A, tra- a trophy of grace. But to go back to the illustration that I raised at the beginning, that is the rose that was damaged, redeemed. But what of the rose that has been restored or the rose that though fallen has not suffered the same loss already? How is she to live in light of the gospel that's being applied to her life? Well, first, instead of her speech leading to hell, its powers of persuasion bring life. She is a preacher of life. I'm not 
promoting female preachers from the pulpit, saying she speaks life to all who are around her. Proverbs 31, the words of King Lemuel, the oracle which his mother taught him. What, O my son, his mother taught him. What, O my son, and what, O son of my womb, and what, O son of my vows, do not give your strength to women or your ways to that which destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink, for they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his trouble no more. Open your mouth for the mute, for all the rights of the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of all the afflicted and needy. Do you know whose tongue is far more powerful than that of the adulteress? Mom's. Mom's tongue. A mother whose speech is guided by the word of God that she understands and knows how to apply. <laughs> She's a force of nature. Lemuel there, by the way, is a pseudonym for Solomon. It's referring to him. It turns out that mom, as well as dad, was a source of his wisdom. So when he writes, he isn't just reflecting David. He's reflecting mom too. All that relational capacity and linguistic skill, once redeemed, becomes a powerful tool in the hands of God to breed life. And our ladies would do very well to understand this power that they wield, and our men too. Especially in a, in a modern context, and I've said this, we have in our midst a lot of people who cannot communicate in basic ways because of the advent and uh, the success of social media, digital mediums, a reversion back to uh, cave art in the form of emojis. Okay, we don't speak well, and this is uh, acutely experienced, even more so, by men. So, brother, if you're in this situation, let your wife help you. She is better at this than you are. The Lord made her to be better at this than you are. Engage in conversation without having to be drug into it. In my own experience, it's not lost on me that I had three sisters, was raised by my mother, had a non-residential father, and I would go on to become a communicator in the body of Christ. The Lord absolutely used that because there were words in a house with four women. So many words about everything all the time. But beyond motherhood, what of a wife's speech to her husband with respect to intimacy? Let's see, we've got to have the thesis and the antithesis. The whore speaks of filthy things to men who do not belong to her. But on account of her abuse of this, the woman of God is not silent on sexuality. She certainly is discreet and certainly is wise, but she is certainly not silent. She speaks of her holy rights over her husband and of his holy rights over her. Song of Solomon, chapter 2. I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys. Like a lily among the thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. In his shade I took great delight and sat down, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. That is euphemistic language representing 
the marital act, and as far as the specific nature of that act goes, there is no chance that I will be telling you that. You can look it up on your own after. Going on in verse 4, he has brought me to his banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. I am lovesick. Let his left hand be under my head, and his right hand embrace me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. Um, It's hard to pick this up from there, but she's actually vowing chastity among the other daughters of Jerusalem. It's a covenant that she's making in their purview to be chaste and to be faithful. Verse 8, listen, my beloved, behold, he is coming, climbing on the mountains, leaping on the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he is standing behind our wall. He is looking through the windows. He is peering through the lattice that is also pregnant with references to sexuality and there perhaps she is also giving him something to look at maybe verse 4 going on oh my dove in the clefts of the rock in the secret place of the steep pathway let me see your form let me hear your voice for your voice is sweet and your form is lovely my beloved is mine and i am his his pastures he pastures his flocks among the lilies until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away turn my beloved and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains Abether. Now, am I actually telling you, woman, Christian woman, no less, to speak of sex in glorious detail to the glory of God? Yes, I am, with your husband. And on behalf of every Christian man, let me also say to you, sister, according to James, be not a hearer of the word only, but a doer also, or a speaker of it. Celebrate and embrace God's good gift of life-affirming sexuality with your covenant husband. And speaking of husbands, Solomon's counsel to us is, Proverbs five fifteen through 19, drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving hind and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. His, responsibilities, his responsibility, ladies, is to have eyes only for you. He is to be exhilarated with you. And you are to enjoy him. The world is full of adulterers and adulteresses and they have defiled sex with themselves but they certainly don't define sex for us. Christ does. So let your covenant husband behold your form as only he has a right to. Let him be exhilarated. And if you don't have a covenant husband, do what you can to get one. One that is worthy of your love. One that is worthy of you giving this gift to him that you have preserved in chastity. Now the whore does have a kind of beauty. That's true. It doesn't help anybody to pretend otherwise. Solomon doesn't pretend otherwise. We shouldn't either. But that cannot compare with a woman who belongs only to you. And so, young lady, again, understand the great gift that you've been given. Understand that it is a gift. And hold it in trust so that you can give it to your husband as a gift. Keep it and preserve it. It's not that the rose analogy had no place. It's that it was misplaced in its use. 
all of us who've done various things, committed various different sins in various different categories, can preach to you about the grace of God and the redemptive power. And we can also tell you that in this temporal space, the consequences of these decisions remain. The nails have been pulled out of the door, but we can still see the holes. Don't put the holes in the door in the first place if you have not already. And if you have already, Christ is a greater Savior than you ever will be a sinner. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for your word, for the clarity that it provides. Lord, for the fact that it does cut, but then heals. Lord, I pray that you give our ladies grace in this world of perversity that teaches them to abuse their sexuality in order to abuse others. We pray that our ladies would appreciate what you have given them, that they would take joy over it, that they would celebrate it, and that they would remember the context into which it is to be celebrated and not believe the lies of the devil. And we praise you and we thank you for all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Illyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.